This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Okay, welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton, and I'm joined in the studio by none other than Mike Yuseem. How are you, Mike? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you doing? Uh, I am. Yeah, it's been a, been a uh, kind of a bit of a busy week, <laughs> right? Well, it's going to get less busy, I think, the way we're going, since so much seems to be on the chopping block for cancellation or postponement. Yeah, that's, exactly. That, that's another story. We have a guest on the show today um, who he's done some pretty interesting things and had some pretty unique experiences. And um, and I think the conversation that we want to have with, with our good friend, Andrew Town, um, is about that set of experiences. But I have a feeling that we'll be able to draw some parallels between some of the... Uh, some of the adventures that Andrew has been a part of uh, and how he has learned to adapt and adjust uh, and be part of a team which is is leading through a very uncertain environment. So how do you like that, Mike? <laughs> good. Very good, Jeff. Okay. All right. I just I just want to make sure you're on board. All right. All right. All right. You know, it, it all goes off the rails if we go in different directions here. Um. We should probably welcome Andrew to the show. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are Thanks you, my friend? Me. I'm doing real well. All right. Let me, um, if I can, let me just say a couple words about you here, uh, and then we will, uh, I'm sure we'll travel the world together, at least uh, from the comfort of our radio <laughs> studio. <laughs> um, let's see. So, Andrew, Mike and I know you because you are a, you're a graduate uh, from both the Wharton School as well as the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So you're a, you're a JD MBA graduate here. Um, you did your undergraduate work mm. at Yale, where you graduated with a, a degree in political science. Um, and you also studied at the University of Nairobi at one point um, under one of your many scholars and, and fellowships and, uh, and things like that. And it, it's at Yale where... Uh, you were a collegiate rower. Am I right about that? That's right. And and you know, again, we'll we'll go far and wide here. But but tell us for a second. Um, when did you get into rowing? And um, you know, what kind of part of the journey were your undergraduate competitive rowing days? Sure. I walked onto the Yale crew team as a freshman, and the reason I did it was because. Growing up in rural North Dakota, I was actually pretty overweight as a kid. So I was big into singing and musical theater, but I always got picked last for every sport and gym class. And, you know, kids tease me as as they do, uh, but I think it kind of irked me. So in high school, I started jogging first just a half a block and then eventually a full mile. And by the time I got to college, I I wanted to take the leap and, and See if I could make it as a Division One varsity athlete. Crew was the only sport that would take you with no prior experience, so a, a rower was born. <laughs> and, and I'm—I mean, not just a rower here, but um, as I recall, this you—you you 
are part of a U.S. national championship team in collegiate rowing. Is that right? That's right. All right. So a, a pretty good rower. Years, well, <laughs> <laughs> but let's face it, rowing's a team sport. Of and course. So I got lucky in the sense that my skills advanced to the point that I could make the varsity boat, and I happened to make the varsity boat in a year where the other seven guys in the boat were extremely talented. <laughs> You know, Andrew, I've been Mike and I have been at this for a while, and you're not the first rower to be on the show. You're not even you're not the first record holding rower to be on the show. And I will say one pattern of rower behavior is to always credit the other rowers in the boat. <laughs> it's the ultimate team sport. Exactly. There's exactly. no way to gauge who pulled harder during the race. Well, so your love of rowing, then, um, and your your commitment to it, it extends. And, and, I mean, we would have had you on the show regardless of how you spent the, the winter break. But um, we all became aware that you had um, you had a just a, you had joined another team that was doing something that's never been done before. And so the 600 mile Drake Passage. Uh, which, for our listeners, you, you want to think about the waters between South America and Antarctica. Um, some of the most dangerous uh, waters in the world. And it, as I understand it, a, an area that, that really had never been rowed, never been traversed through manual power. Um, you know, a, again, this is the last time I will caveat this by saying we have, you know, we have, we have far to go here, but... Give us just a, a s- small idea of how you go from rowing within a, a you know NCAA environment to now joining a uh, you were one of six rowers on this team um, to joining a, a team like this. I mean, how how does that transformation uh, occur? Sure. So it starts with being a kid from rural North Dakota on the Yale varsity crew team. And there was not a single day where I didn't want to quit because I'd never experienced any physical pain like that before in my life. And I, I didn't know how, during a test, I would respond to the temptation to go slower rather than faster. Mm-hmm. And so overcoming this fear that I would quit or that I would break in the face of pain, uh, it, it became an addiction. And there was nothing I liked more than saying yes when my body tempted me to say no. That translated into actually a love of mountain climbing because mm-hmm. I'm terrified of heights, and that was another fear that I could force myself to overcome. And your question was about ocean rowing, but I got into it because uh, after 10 years of mountain climbing, I realized that, that ocean rowing had a lot of similarities. I liked long-term endurance sports. Uh, I'm not a strong swimmer. I'm terrified of bad weather. And I used to know how to row. So it was sort of, yeah, these are three things I love in life. Let me go <laughs> row a crazy Drake Passage. So, Andrew, this is Mike. I'm going to jump in. Uh, great to have you on the show. And just to make it very personal at the outset, do you miss us? I miss you, of course. Okay. In fact, uh, as I reflect on leadership lessons uh, for your questions, all I can think about are Stu Friedman and Adam Grant and yourselves. Uh, well, well, good to hear that. Uh, we did have various conversations uh, around that topic, and of course, leadership is one of the required topics here at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. Can't graduate without going through that. But you came with a lot of leadership experience uh, before you arrived, and just to make a um, 
I guess, an obvious point. Uh, let's see. You've climbed Mount Everest, which is over 29,000 feet above sea level, and you spent a lot of time at sea level. So let's just say you've been at the ends of a spectrum. <laughs> and, Andrew, I'm going to pick up on something you just said, that um, you were not a natural maybe for either sport, either rowing or for mountaineering. Uh, you're scared of heights, and last time I checked, most of the mountains do have a lot of what mountaineers will call exposure. And to appreciate or to help our listeners appreciate it, what it means to be facing exposure on a mountain like Mount Everest, let me uh, get you up. You probably went up on the south route, the south call route to the summit of Mount Everest. That's right. So let me get you up maybe around 1 a.m. You've got about 3,000 feet from the south call, a campsite up to the summit. Uh, there are rather, some rather precipitous uh, fall-offs as you're heading up. So just uh, describe it physically for a minute, and then I'll pick up on that. Sure. Mount Everest, you're, you're struggling with a lot of different things. First of all, you've got the cold, because at 29,000, you're, you're almost in the jet stream. So you've got wind and uh, temperatures well below 10 or 20 or quickly 30 degrees below zero. The next thing you've got is a lack of oxygen, uh, which I think people hear a lot about. But even if you're wearing a little bit of supplemental oxygen, as Sir Edmund Hillary did and did, it still just makes you feel sleepy. At any given point, if you sit down, you wish you could just take a nap. And the final challenge relates to exposure, which you just said. To give you a sense, the south summit is about the last quarter mile or so of trail before the true summit a few hundred feet above and you have to cross what uh what's called the cornice ridge and this ridge in part is about a foot and a half two feet wide and on either side you're looking down a sheer drop i want to say it's like eight thousand feet so i'm i'm a midwesterner eight sears towers or i guess willis towers stretching below me in almost uh, a direct fall, and I'm creeping across this one-and-a-half-foot-wide stretch of snow. For a guy who's afraid of heights, that took just about all the mental willpower I could muster. <laughs> to say the least. I want to note that you've climbed the other of the five continental summits, I guess I'll put it that way, the highest mountain on the five continents. We'll come back to that in a few minutes, but just to stay on Mount Everest for a few more minutes... Uh, that, too, is a team sport. You're roped to somebody else, typically, or at least you're clipped into a rope that uh, usually Sherpas have put up uh, along that um, cornice ridge. And in working with your own anxieties, and this has got a direct leadership relevance here, in working with your own um, anxieties about 8,000-foot uh, <laughs> drop-offs, it's not unlike what people who carry responsibility in enterprises often face, not physically, but are we going to be able to sell our product this quarter? Do we have customers out there? Um, can we make payroll? Many anxieties, maybe especially brought to the fore right now with the coronavirus issues. Anyway, to get back to the main question here, how did you work with the fact that you were not a natural for mountaineering in that you began with a fear of heights? Personally, I dealt with that through preparation, and I think that my, my mentality is we prepare for everything that we can prepare for, 
because there's so much for which we cannot prepare. And mountaineering is a great example of that because what I can control is having an emergency sleeping bag, having mm. the eating the right nutrition, training in advance of a mountaineering expedition. What I can't control is, for example, in 2015, the first time I attempted to summit Mount Everest, uh, I, I was. It was the year that an earthquake killed thousands of people in Nepal and and let down a massive avalanche on us at base camp. So, around 30 people were killed around me in this avalanche. My tent and and our camp was very lucky to be missed by the avalanche, and and it actually became the camp hospital where all of the casualties of this avalanche were brought to us. And for 24 hours, we sort of triaged them and did what we could to help before they could be evacuated by helicopter. Uh, but, but that was a very powerful reinforcement for me that whether it be in the mountains or on the ocean, there's so much you can't control that I, I think of it as I almost owe it to myself and to my team to, to put myself in the best possible position to respond to those eventualities. Andrew, let me pick up Annette and then throw the baton back in Jeff's direction in just a minute. Uh, you are a principal in the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, and much of your work we know at, at uh, premier consulting firms like BCG entails working with uh, middle to very senior managers who are facing their own challenges, sometimes to the point of being um, let's just say, very stressful. And in advising them, can I just ask, does that point you just made, I suspect it does, carry over to your advice giving? When working for BCG, you've got a, a company executive in the room fretting about the quarter. And my guess is you say, look, you can control what you can control. The coronavirus, harvest, the coronavirus right now is out of our control. But don't forget to do what you can indeed control. So let me ask, is there a bit of a carryover on that one? There is. Preparation is important for sure. I actually would take a lesson from mountaineering and translate it into four actions that a CEO could take. And those are to have a strong vision, to create a plan that you're confident will take you toward your vision, to build a strong team and then to make sure that that team is supported and coached along the way. Great. Let me just remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here in the studio with Mike Yuseem. And we're talking to Andrew Town about his, among other things, uh, record-setting trip across the Drake Passage between South America and Antarctica last year. Um, Andrew, I, I want to pick up on that a, a little bit in some of the, the transferring that you're able to do uh, between contexts. Uh, you know, as, as we've just gotten into this conversation, we've talked a little bit about rowing. We've talked a little bit about mountaineering. Um, you know, you've done some of the translation to, okay, I, I've, I've picked up some lessons from mountaineering that are going to be relevant within the, within the business world. Um, help help us and our listeners just understand you know what kind of process do you go through to identify these kinds of lessons first within the the context you're in say the mountaineering context and then um you know 
crystallize them enough where they can be tested in other environments. Um, and, and I ask you because I, I think this is one of the hardest, uh, one of the hardest parts of experiential learning. Interesting question. Mm -hmm. I am fascinated by culture. As a 16-year-old North Dakotan, I probably never would have left, but my German teacher encouraged me to be an exchange student with Youth for Understanding. Hmm. So I spent my junior year of high school in Germany, and I came back wanting to talk about nothing other than what does it mean to be German, what does it mean to be American. Mm -hmm. And that influenced my passion for international affairs and now international business. To answer your question, the way that I think about leadership across context has a lot to do with the way that I think about culture. I believe that all humans are fundamentally adaptable and that we can change our behavior if we want to. And because of that, regardless of where I am or what I'm doing, I'm thinking about how could I act differently in this situation to make it better for all parties involved. Uh, so in the mountains, I'm thinking about how I might be a stronger leader to help my expedition. Mm -hmm. And in the boardroom, I'm thinking about what types of advice or structures might help a group of people make a decision more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And, and Andrew, I, I realized that if you were in the studio, this question might make you blush a little bit. And we'd probably get a, a better answer if we asked the, the five rowers that were, uh, you know, in the Drake Passage with you. But, but I'll ask you because I like asking you hard questions. Um, where do you think that orientation came from for you? This, um, you know, the, this sort of stance um, in leadership that you as an individual are, are constantly surveying, constantly trying to, you know, add that next um, movement, add that next behavior, which is going to ultimately benefit the group and, and, and bring everyone up. Where, where does that come from? Yeah, I think it's, it's a in pure intellectual passion born out of my experience as an exchange student. Hmm. I think some people are fascinated by math. Other people have beautiful music flowing through their head all the time. For me, what's going through my head is, in whatever interaction I'm participating in, is it being influenced by culture or by the situation at hand or by ulterior motives, etc.? cetera? Uh, so that just happens to be where my mind wanders. And, and um, you know, we, we've, we've talked about the, the impact of, uh, you know, both the German teacher as well as the German, uh, the, the time you spent living in Germany. Um, you know, continue to sort of track us forward within your, your life and career. Um, how did you continue to explore those themes? Exchange year in Germany motivated me to study abroad again in college. That mm -hmm. was the University of Nairobi. And after college, I wanted to serve my country in foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. So I joined the Central Intelligence Agency. And I always was interested in how international business influences foreign affairs. I also think that businesses are interesting cultural microcosms themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I applied to Wharton and the University of Pennsylvania Law School hoping that I might join BCG Minneapolis so that I could be close to where I grew up in a beautiful rowing city while continuing to expose myself to international cultures. 
and and just track us along here. How long have you been out at at, at BCG in in Minneapolis now? Uh, just over four years. Okay, all right. So just over four years. Um, and you returned to Mount Everest in in what year? Two thousand fifteen was the first attempt. Right. And the avalanche. Two thousand seventeen. Uh, I was able to return, and and we got lucky and made it to the top. Okay. All right. So, two thousand seventeen, uh, you're you're able to return to Mount Everest. You said the word rowing, so I'm going to bring us back to to the the most recent adventure here. Um, where did the idea to uh, cross the Drake Passage? Where did it come from? Um, and uh, I'm imagining this is kind of post the the Everest adventure, or, or maybe you had both in the works at the same time. Where give give us a little bit about the genesis of this idea? Sure. A few weeks after coming down from Mount Everest, I started to wonder what my next adventure might be. And a college rowing teammate of mine had just set the world record for the fastest transatlantic row. So I when I was catching up with him and hearing his stories about 35 days on the Atlantic, I realized it was many of the things I loved in life, (laughs) bad weather, or I should say unpredictable (laughs) weather, (laughs) rowing and being surrounded by nature for multiple days at a time. So my teammate introduced me to our captain from this past row, who's an Icelandic gentleman named Sion Paul. And I, I simply asked Sion what his next project was, and he confided in me that he wanted to row to Antarctica. Hmm. And the moment he said it, I was hooked. So I started planning with him in 2017, and he brought two of our teammates into the boat. Uh, he had rowed across the Indian Ocean with a gentleman named Cameron Bellamy and Jamie Douglas Hamilton. And then the other two rowers in our boat were friends of mine from college. John Peterson was the captain of the Yale heavyweight crew team, and Colin O'Brady is uh, a fairly well-known explorer who was on the swim team at Yale. Andrew, we are a couple minutes from a station break, but I wanted to squeeze in a question right now, and then we'll continue it after the break, about the club that you and I and Jeff are all in, which is learning from experiences that are not business-like as such, Uh, in ways, though, that can help people who are in business or running a hospital or maybe in charge of a community organization. And as you think about uh, summiting the five summits and then rowing uh, the Drake, which, by the way, is about 600 miles last time I checked, uh, left to right if you you went that way from South Africa over toward South America, uh, what are a couple ideas that have forever, in a sense, informed you, having done both of those amazing feats that have nothing to do now with rowing or mountaineering, but have a direct, uh, uh, that is, shorn of that context, that though inform you as you work with some of your clients? Sure. A moment ago, I mentioned vision, team, path, and support. Uh, That certainly applies in mountaineering, I think it also applies in ocean rowing. So Theon and I were very brought together to achieve the vision that he had of rowing from Chile to Antarctica. Uh, And in terms of 
support, we, we were very lucky to have partners with the Discovery Channel, Canada Goose, Standard Process Nutrition, Mountain House, and uh, Iridium Communications. Uh, the final leg is around the path, and for two years, constantly thinking logistics, survival plans, gear needs, nutrition needs. That's the preparation part that I alluded to a moment ago. Yeah. We're in a conversation with Andrew Town. Uh, Andrew is part of a six-man rowboat crew that crossed the 600-mile Drake Passage between South America and Antarctica last year. Uh, he's also a Penn and Wharton grad and a principal at the Boston Consulting Group. And if you've been um, uh, listening to the, the first half of the show, also a very proud North Dakotan. So, Andrew, um, let us um, get us into the rowboat, if you would. And we, we've talked a little bit about where the idea came from. We've talked about uh, what drew you to the experience. Um, and, and, and I'm curious now uh, if you can paint us a bit of a picture about what those, what those 12 days are like, how the crew is functioning, um, and, and maybe some of the expected and unexpected challenges that you were facing. Sure. The first thing we have to do to get into the rowboat is shrink. <laughs> because the rowboat is only 29 feet long. It has three rowing positions, and then it has a tiny cabin at each end of the boat. The cabin in the bow of the boat, the boat at the, the the part of the front of the boat, is built for one. But at times we put three people in there. For short <laughs> periods, we even stuffed four people in there. That felt like a clown car. Right. The cabin at the back of the boat was built for one, and we usually put two people in there. I mean, uh, can, can I just ask great. quickly? Did did you consider getting a bigger boat? <laughs> uh, we did. The smaller boat had advantages. We wanted a shorter boat okay. because a shorter boat is less likely to, to turn sideways in big swells mm. and capsize. Okay. Uh, so it was, it was somewhat strategic. We knew we would be squishing, but we really did have to squish. So that's the first element of life on the rowboat. It took us just over 12 days to row from Chile to Antarctica. And during those 12 days, I would say that there were three types of conditions. Uh, now, now, the Drake Passage, as you mentioned, is notorious as the worst stretch of water in the world. The reason for that is that it is the point where the Pacific Ocean merges with both the Atlantic Ocean and the Southern Ocean, which swirls around Antarctica. Hmm. So you've got this tiny little strait of water with these massive ocean currents coming through, and added to that, the Andes Mountains, which end in the southern tip of Chile, funnel all of the weather down into the same passage. So you now not only have the currents, but also crazy changes in wind direction and storms growing up. So in any 12-hour period, uh, you could go from hurricane-force winds of 50 or 60 miles an hour to total calm in the eye of a storm as it rolls over you. And that left us with three types of environments on the boat. The first was calm moments during the eye of the storm or between storms. And, and those moments were terrific for actually being able to enjoy the sport of rowing and, and occasionally have a conversation with our teammates. Mm -hmm. The next environment was choppy seas on which we still were able to row. And usually our ability to row was dictated more by 
with the wind direction and the current direction than by the height of the wave. So there were days when we would continue to row even as the waves grew to 10 or 15 feet around us so long as they weren't a, a headwind or something pushing us backward. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, there, there was almost nothing as scary for me as the first time we were rowing up and down 15-foot swells sideways, listening to the dagger board, which is the steel board underneath our boat, sort of like a keel. We could actually hear it hum as it vibrated mm-hmm. to keep us straight as we rowed down these big waves. I didn't know if I could trust the boat at first, Right. I was terrified that the power of the ocean could, could break us. And the final environment of those 12 days was the really bad storms where we were forced to drop sea anchor and hang on for dear life. Uh, and we had five storms like that where we actually had to hunker down. And the reason they were so miserable uh, had to do with the fact that not all six of us could sit in these cabins at one time. So we had to rotate. And in any given hour and a half period, one of us had to sit on deck during the storm. The worst of them, the final storm, just a few miles off the coast of Antarctica, had swells and waves up to 30 feet crashing down upon us every couple of minutes. And to be out on that deck, you're wearing a leash and you have your life preserver, but to just be in that element, tossed and turned like a little toy boat in a bathtub with a, with a wild kid splashing around, was uh, unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> if you were here in the studio, I think you would just see Mike and I, our, our jaws have dropped totally, at this point. Totally. Um, if I can ask, Andrew, I mean, as you're sitting there, how do you manage that level of stress, anxiety, uncertainty? It's funny. I didn't expect this, but the same techniques that I used to persevere through the hardest college rowing workouts, uh-huh. immediately came flooding back to me. So for me, they involved uh, thinking about the people and communities who'd helped me become who I was, feeling grateful for my teammates, uh, because by focusing on others, it actually helps me distract myself from my own pain. Right. Uh, by, by doing things to attempt to transport myself out of the moment. For example, I oddly enough, I like to sing German campfire songs in my mind. And finally, uh, I sometimes employ a technique of micro-focus where I actually break down the hour-and-a-half shift of suffering in a storm on the Drake Passage into individual minutes, and I just count to 100, and I tell myself, if you count to 100, probably at least one minute has passed. And I would just do that over and over and over again until four and a half hours of death. And, and these techniques, Andrew, I mean, are these things that, um, you know, were were offered to you or, or suggested to you? Are they things that developed, that, that you developed just over time? I mean, I, I think I, I'm very curious. I think our listeners would be curious about how um, how one would really curate this kind of a regimen. Yeah. They, they were things that I sort of just did naturally, and I didn't realize that I was doing them until I was preparing to leave for Iraq during the Iraq War, and I went through a uh, sort of a survival training course. And as part of the survival training course, we, we, we learned that there were indeed techniques that people could use to persevere through the challenges one might face in war. And that's when it dawned on me that, oh, man, these, these techniques are actually things that I've been doing in crew and in the mountains for a long time. 
Now, Andrew, um, next question, just because I, I, I don't know how we have this whole conversation about the, the Drake passage and the rowboat and big waves and everything else without me asking, but whales? Did you, did you see whales? Tons of whales. Friendly whales. Friendly whales. <laughs> we, we, so uh, I was happy to read the fact that no killer whale has ever attacked a human outside of captivity. Okay. Supposedly they don't always like their minders when they're in captivity, but yeah. in the ocean they're nice. I, I, uh, I think yeah, I can be we, sympathetic on the the, <laughs> the captivity ones, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, we saw whales almost every day. At one point, a pod of orcas actually swam directly under our rowboat. We saw the dorsal fins about 20 feet off of our starboard, and moments later, we saw the same dorsal fins a couple of feet off our port. Uh, we saw gray whales, uh, humpback whales, just massive, beautiful beasts. At one point, as we rowed down the Antarctica Peninsula on our last day, about half a dozen penguins actually followed us for miles, just swim, diving in and out of the water as they swam directly behind our boat. So that the wildlife was uh, heavenly, I guess, is the only way I can describe it. Yeah, well, the penguins had probably heard from the whales that they should get a load of these six nuts that just <laughs> rode across the Drake Passage, right? You're, probably, you're, you're not going to see guys like this again. You're going to want to follow them for a bit. <laughs> Um, and, and, and then take us, if you would, to, um, you know, to, towards the end of the journey here. And you said that one of the, the biggest storms uh, is happening uh, when you're just a few miles off the coast of Antarctica. Um, what is it like when, when you see land? What is it like when you make land fall and realize that, that you've accomplished this feat that, that no one has ever accomplished before? Sure. So that storm, we knew that we were close to land, but because of the storm, we couldn't actually see land. So it, it felt uh, almost like a cruel twist of fate that our destination was so top of mind, and yet we were being thrown one last challenge. I guess it kept us humble. Don't don't ever get ahead of yourself and think that you've finished the race before you've actually finished the race. Right. We can still throw a curveball at you. Then your question was about actually landing on Antarctica. And the, my first emotion was I felt my body and my anxiety release. Yeah. Uh, because as soon as I set foot on dry land, I realized that I could have all the nutrition and water I needed, that it was not long until I could sleep properly, that we did not have to go back out into a storm like that in a 29-foot boat again. And the second emotion that I felt was almost, I guess I was, I was proud to realize that our preparation and our team and our planning yeah. had actually been enough. And that's weird. It, it, didn't, it didn't feel like winning a major race. It felt like an affirmation that, wow, we really did that. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever done that before. And, and, and our best efforts were good enough to safely achieve the goal. Andrew, I'll, I'll uh, 
ask you one last question here, and I'm going to uh, give it back to Mike. And, and even before I ask you that question, I will let our listeners know that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and I'm here with Mike Yuseem. We're talking with Andrew Town, uh, part of a six-man crew, crew who rode the Drake Passage between South America and Antarctica last year. Um, and and Andrew, I you know I, I want to pick up on this last point that you've made, um, the pride that you felt in your in your preparations, in the team's preparations, um, in the training that you had gone through. It when, when you get to the point of successfully completing the journey, um, and, and perhaps not right in the moment, but as you you reflect back on that preparation, on that training, were there decisions that the that you had made or that the team had made um, that you were particularly um, proud of that you were um, particularly grateful for saying yeah we 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 thought we might need this and wow that that ended up making all the difference yeah <clears throat> it actually had to do with team formation mm. when we were in Punta Arenas Chile preparing to launch, our first night together, we spent a few hours talking about what type of team we wanted to be mm -hmm. and what brought each of us to that point. And we were all very vulnerable. Uh, the, my friend John, who has a two-year-old, shared with us how high he prioritized safety because he needed to return to his family in a very different way than the rest of us needed to return since, since none of the rest of us had kids. Uh, but also during that conversation, in talking about what type of team we wanted to be, one of the values we agreed upon is that we wanted to always assume best intentions from one another. And so it was powerful because you're doing these long shifts and people have to take breaks to stretch or to drink water. Uh, and you don't really know how much effort each person's putting in or what type of physical ailments they have on any given day. And by assuming best intentions, it, it it created this really positive, virtuous circle where we always uh, tried to support one another and be generous to one another, and that replicated itself. So the team dynamic was incredibly strong, and, and I would say after the road that I would, I would happily take on similarly large adventures or challenges with those five men again. Mike. So, Andrew, we're, we're uh, indeed sitting here with our jaws kind of dropping on just the, the arduous and risky character of this uh, passage. And just to add a little bit more to it, but then I've got a question that picks up on where you were just a second ago. As I recall, when uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton sailed a different direction, for he was stranded there on Elephant Island and decided he had to get over to South Georgia, Island in the um, uh, southeastern Atlantic there. On the way across, lots of ice formed on the front, especially on, on the bow, but increasingly beyond it. And they really had to worry about uh, the many pounds added. So was icing also a factor, or were you free of that when you did it? We were free of icing. We, we were swamped regularly. Uh, by the waves that crashed over us as we were rowing and while we were on sea anchor. Uh, but luckily, our boat was self-bailing, meaning that it had holes in the sides where even when a wave landed squarely on top of us, the, the water would quickly flow out the side. Yeah. 
And due to the time of year, we chose just about the the peak or beginning of summer in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, and that luxury meant that, that uh, water didn't freeze on us after it splashed yep. us. It was usually just above freezing. And then second and final reference on that, having flown the Drake Passage, I did notice, especially as you went very far south towards Antarctica, there were lots of icebergs. So were you encountering that along the way, uh, those along the way as well? Yes. Uh, you mentioned aircraft, actually. Uh, uh, a tribute to how dangerous the Drake is, our scheduled departure date w- was supposed to be December 9th, and I believe that was the exact day that a Chilean C-130 aircraft took off from Punta Arenas, the port where we started, ne- never to reach Antarctica. Hmm. Uh, I don't believe they've yet discovered what caused the plane to crash into the sea, but talk about a reality check as we were about to row the Drake Passage to, to realize that there was an international search and rescue going on in that very mm-hmm. water because the weather had been so horrible that a, that a military aircraft plane had, had vanished out of thin air. So, yep. so great, great tragedy that kept us on our toes. Then you asked about icebergs. Uh, the closer we got to Antarctica, the more icebergs we saw. At first, they were as large as I would actually, one of them, I think, was about the size of the U.S. Pentagon. I say that because it took us half an hour to row by a single iceberg, implying that it was almost a mile wide. And based on the size of the waves at its base, I would guess up to 200 or 300 feet tall out of the water. So these were risks from afar, but the smaller ones, I think, were more troublesome because... As we got closer to land, they were more common, and they were almost like small landmines dotting the water. Because you don't know what's underneath, they're just bobbing up and down. But but the ice that's bobbing up and down could potentially be large enough to flip the boat or to break mm-hmm. the boat if it hits you. So we had to give them all wide berths, and that, that involves some tricky navigation, some close calls. So, Andrew, it leads into my final question here, and that is, uh, it's risky, it was long, it was arduous, um, even dangerous at some points. And <clears throat> you mentioned that uh, when you were in Punta Arenas, that southern town in Chile, and about to uh, begin the trip across the Drake, that you spent some time thinking about who you were, what your intentions were, what uh, w- what the agenda was for each of you. But, of course, in picking the five other rowers to go with you, there was, there was probably a lot of work on your part and their work to have the right six people in that boat. So team best formed or team certainly best picked before you need it. What did you do in the weeks before you arrived there to ensure that the people you're going to be with would indeed be the right people in the right boat? Sure. Uh, well, as you mentioned, there was a selection. Uh, selection was very important. And then hmm. culture and preparation were important. The selection, uh, there were a lot of people who were interested, and we thought that if we described the expedition in as much detail as we knew it, there would be a certain amount of self-selection bias. And I think that's true. And the reason we ended up with three people who had already rode through typhoons on the Indian Ocean, hmm. they clearly had a very very strong vision of what they might expect. And then 
Uh, Colin O'Brady was the the first person to do a solo, unsupported, unaided crossing of Antarctica. So I I knew him personally, and I knew he had been up to challenges like this. And John Peterson, because I'd rode with him, even though he had never done an expedition in nature like this, uh, I'd seen him in action, and I knew that he was the ultimate team player who would always prioritize training and the safety of those around him. And one last just follow-on on that. As you work with your clients and they're asking about uh, who should be on the top team, who should be in a, in a new product team, I assume some of these ideas and experiences carry over into what you do advise them as they constitute their own teams. What do you think? Sure. Selection. Know your goal. Uh, come up with sort of a, a criteria for who you think can help you fulfill that role, and then casting a wide net. And, and I'm, I'm a big believer in transparency. The more two people share what they're actually trying to achieve, the better they'll be able to figure out if it's a good fit for each person. That actually came a lot from the negotiations course I took with Stu Diamond at the Wharton School. Uh, his book, I believe the title of it was Getting More, and, and the lessons I remember from it are by truly looking for partnership and collaboration, you can actually find more optimal solutions. So I think that's mm-hmm. true in general negotiations, but certainly also in hiring. So Andrew, we're, um, we're, we're starting to approach the, the end of our time here. And uh, I, I want to circle back to uh, some of the comments that you made, you know, as we were just getting started at the top of the hour here. And you, know, you, you talked about... Um, you know, both rowing as well as mountaineering um, in, in at least some part being connected to a, a desire to to confront or conquer some of your fears or some of the unknown. Um, what advice do you have for listeners who have their own fears and anxieties that they are, um, you know, that, that they are looking to confront? How, how, how do you best approach that kind of an experience? Yeah. Uh, three pieces of advice. First, believe in yourself. Second, find an advocate. And third, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So believe in yourself. Uh, that takes a little bit of confidence. Yeah. You can get that confidence through things that are as simple as sleeping well, doing something to be active trying to eat well. If, if we're taking care of ourselves, it's much easier to believe in ourselves when we have less stress and anxiety. The second one, find advocates or mentors. It could be a family member. It could be a teacher. It could be a coworker that you like. But, but somebody that believes in you, knowing that they believe in you, um, makes a huge difference. And finally, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. I, I, I was an overweight, self-conscious kid in North Dakota, who, who never dreamed of leaving North Dakota, let, let alone working in international business and rowing to Antarctica. And so it's funny, but the, the reason jogging is a story I tell so often is because almost the hardest part for me was the day that I decided to jog half a block. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, you know, looking around and seeing the other kids watch me do this and trying to imagine how crazy they thought I was, <laughs> in retrospect, feels almost as wild as the way people looked at me when I told them I was going to row to Antarctica. Right, 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 right. 
Well, and, you know, I, I think one of the things we've all discovered over the course of this hour is you are clearly crazy. Um, but but we're, 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 proud to, we're proud to call you a friend and we're proud to call you an alum. Um, Andrew, we, we're, we're right up against the end of our time here. So I'm going to say thanks so much for joining us on the show today. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple months when you're back on campus. And Andrew, just a, a thanks also from me. And do write that book. Mike and Jeff, thank you both so much. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 